We'll be reading in Hebrews again this week. Don't you love these, these uh, sermons on faith? Hebrews 11, 17 to 20. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. This is the word of God. You may have heard of uh, the title, The Seven Cardinal Virtues. And you may add to that list others, but there were seven traditionally. I think if we were to uh, add a cardinal virtue to contemporary thinking, it might be the virtue, and I put in quotation marks, the virtue of self-confidence. Realize how important it is to people in our world? You hear it all the time. Self-confidence is really almost a virtue, though it probably doesn't qualify as one. I'm not going to suggest that self-confidence is unimportant, but I do want to offer an alternative. Shall we say an alternative that's a bit of a fix to the overemphasis on self-confidence? And here's the alternative. I worry, don't you, about those who have not even a modicum, a tiny little bit of self-doubt. Don't you worry about that? I worry about it in politicians and philosophers and preachers and the list goes on. People who have not a shred of self-doubt as a part of their DNA are dangerous people. Confidence is a good thing. But a measure of self-doubt is good as well. Frequently, self-doubt helps us to reassess a situation. To look at something from a different vantage point than the one we're looking at it from. Sometimes self-doubt is actually the on-ramp to confession. It's the on-ramp to an apology. It's the on-ramp to saying, I was wrong. I need to rethink this, isn't it? I think it is. So, let me suggest something. After sounding so severe about self-doubt, and of course, my cold makes it even more severe. Um, let me suggest something. As much as I love the Scripture, and I love the evangelical tradition, which is what I'm a part of, I think frequently we enter the study of Scripture without a lot of self-doubt. We enter it with absolute confidence that we can be certain about how to interpret it and completely understand it. 
And there's some part of that that's great because we're taking it seriously. There's another part of it that's a bit dangerous. Because interpretation of the Scripture not only is not just one way, interpretation of the Scripture has been seen by faithful people for centuries in different ways. For instance, when we study the Scripture, when we especially try to interpret the New Testament Scripture, we frequently do things like analyze words, um, original meaning of the word, the etymology of the word, how it emerged, the word in the context in which we read it. We study the context of the passage. I I hope you've heard me refer to this and do it myself. What's surrounding it so you can understand the basic principle within it? We frequently compare that passage to another passage in the New Testament or in the Old Testament to make sure we're not introducing things that are otherwise inconsistent with the overall proclamation of the Word of God. All of those things are good, and I applaud them. What we frequently do not do is what almost every New Testament author did with the Old Testament Scriptures. We frequently do not see a story within a story. We frequently do not look at a narrative and ask something concerning the narrative. What is the hidden meaning in this narrative? Not what can just be extracted historically, and not what can be just pontificated concerning morality, but what is a deep meaning within the text that's really quite hidden, if I were to be honest. Well, you see that actually emerge in the New Testament biblical authors frequently. If you haven't noticed, Jesus and Paul are chief among those people who look at the Old Testament Scriptures and read them in a way that, quite frankly, we would not have read them. Or, to put it another way, they see things within the Old Testament Scriptures that seem to be hidden from our view. Now, what we could do is we could suggest that Peter and Paul, and the apostles, and of course Jesus had tremendous insight into the Scripture and could see that hidden meaning, and it's not for us to do that any longer. I suppose that would indicate a certain measure of self-doubt, that we don't have that ability or are not inspired in the same way. On the other hand, when we refuse to look at a narrative and ask questions concerning its hidden meaning, I think frequently we forget things, or shall I say overlook them, because they're deeply embedded in the text itself. An example of um, the way in which Scripture is used in the New Testament, take a look at the epistles of Paul, and look how he interprets certain psalms. And if you read what Paul is referring to, and then he suggests what it means, you might say to yourself, if you're honest, Wow, how did he get that out of Psalm chapter such and such? I don't see it there. Because he saw a hidden meaning concerning Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus does it with the Old Testament as well. When it comes to prophecies, whether it's about Jonah or any number of other things. Another place you see it emerging is in Paul's epistles when you encounter Romans chapter 9. You remember Romans chapter 9? 
Romans chapter 9 is the, the high point of uh, many people's understanding of predestination. And in Romans chapter 9, you hear part of the story that we're going to talk about today inserted in the passage. It's a story about Jacob and Esau. It's really about Isaac and Abraham. It's about the patriarchs as a whole. But here's an interesting phrase that's used in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, Jacob, God says, have I loved. And Esau, God says, have I hated. How do you understand that and interpret it? Well, you can move right away to a doctrine concerning predestination, which is a fine thing to do, or you can remind yourself that it comes out of a historical context which sets the stage for a larger understanding about predestination and sovereignty. And that larger stage is set in the historical narrative of Jacob and Esau. And it's Paul that said, I want you to think about Jacob and Esau. When Jacob and Esau was a story, it was more than the story of Jacob and Esau. It was something else. It had something to do with God's grand design concerning bringing Gentiles who were outside the covenant of faith into the covenant of faith through Jesus Christ. He saw a hidden meaning that was deep within the text. This is a a, a rather large opening, so bear with me. Often in the history of biblical interpretation, that approach to understanding the Scriptures has gotten a little bit extreme. Especially within the first five centuries, the extremes became evident, where allegory was taken to a high level, an allegorical level that just really didn't have anything to do with the basic meaning of the text. And we had a reaction to that from many circles, but one of the primary places where it was reacted to was in the Reformation. That's our heritage. The Reformation said the plain sense of Scripture is all we need. I'm being reductionistic. We don't need the high-sounding allegory. Just look at the text itself. It's plain enough for even, as Luther said, a plowboy to understand and interpret. I love that about Luther, and I love that about the Reformation. But every reformer loses something, right? If he or she did not intend to lose something, something is lost in his or her wake. And I think a lot of times what is lost is a new, for us, but an old, for them, understanding of Scripture. To read a story and try to identify within the story another story. Now, I've set up a way to interpret Scripture that is something I think many of you do, I try to do. Frequently, we overlook it and use it as a secondary method. And then having said all that, what I'm about to do really doesn't do justice to it. I'm not going to do a good job of giving typologies, but I'm going to attempt to point some out. And here's the way I want to attempt to point some out. I want to use the life of Isaac to illustrate a few things. The first part of Isaac's story actually goes back to the original text that we read last week and then again this week. It begins with Abraham's story, and you know the story. Isaac is the promise that God has delivered to Abraham, and they've delighted in their son, and he's grown to perhaps 20 years of age by now. 
And then Abraham, as he often does, hears the voice of God. And this voice of God this time says, I want you to take Isaac, your one and only son, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to go to the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham says to God, are you kidding me? We fill in the gaps there. The text doesn't tell us he said that. But don't you have to wonder? Whether or not he said, are you kidding me? We do know this. The pattern that followed the command to sacrifice Isaac was unimpeded by progress. Abraham just turned and went. God said, sacrifice your son. And the narrative gives us no argument. It gives us no, are you kidding me? All it gives us is Abraham turning his face towards Mount Moriah and walking up that mountain to sacrifice his son. That's the narrative, my friends. That narrative has been worked in a number of ways. And many people have called Abraham not the father of faith, but a person who's unfaithful because he just unequivocally followed what seems to be an irrational command from a deity that he couldn't see. Others see Abraham as walking with God and finding the ultimate point of departure between he and God's wisdom and following God's wisdom. But imagine what the hike was like. It took three days, by the way. Isaac, Abraham, and the servants. That means they hiked for three days. And it means they camped for three nights, likely. It means they had a lot of time together. It means at the end of the day, theoretically, they sat around a fire and talked. It means for three days... For three days, my friend, Abraham stared into the eyes, the faiths of his only son, the promise that God had delivered to him, and looked at him hour after hour, and perhaps, because he couldn't sleep, listened to Isaac sleeping and wondered why. I took a hike once with my son in the Grand Canyon, and it was a delight. We had some amazing conversations. I cherished every moment of it. I can't remember, I just can't imagine that hike, knowing that Mount Moriah was at the end. Can you? We often focus on the faith of Abraham, but wait, there's another person here. It's Isaac. Isaac is walking by faith with his father. Isaac never heard the call of God. Isaac is obeying his father on this journey, and he doesn't know until the very last what's about to happen. As they get to the foot of the mountain, Abraham turns to his servants, and he says to them, I and the boy are going to go up to the top of the mountain to worship And then we will return to you. 
That must be why the writer of the book of Hebrews looked at this and said, Abraham's faith was so solid that he believed that even if he sacrificed his son, God would raise him from the dead because there couldn't be any other way. We're going to worship and we will return. And Isaac, also a person of faith, turns with his father and heads towards the top of the mountain. I don't know how early on it is, but Isaac finally asks the ultimate question. Father, we got the wood. By the way, it was on his back. His wood. We've got the wood, Father, and we got the fire, but where is the offering? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says to Isaac, God will provide. And Isaac says to himself, God will provide. They reached the top of the mountain, and when they had set up, then the real story, the real conversation has to begin. It's speculation, but don't you think that's when it really began? As they're building the altar by stones which are on the ground, Isaac begins to realize there's still no lamb. And Abraham turns to him and likely tells him, my son, you are the lamb. Now remember, Isaac is probably 20 years older, maybe older. He could have overpowered an older man like Abraham. He could have run, but he did nothing of the sort. He built his own altar, placed the wood that was on his back on the altar, and laid down and let Abraham bind him up. And then as he laid there passively, a lamb that refused to fight back, Abraham raises the knife, and before he's about to bring it down, the voice of God comes from the heavens. Stop, Abraham. Stop. Now I know you're willing to give me everything. Look to your right or to your left. In the bush, there's a, there's a ram. Use that for the sacrifice. Imagine the euphoria of father and son. The realization that they had followed God to the bitter end and the realization that once again God had provided. And the realization that they were both spared. My, what a story. That's story number one, the sacrifice. Story number two. As Isaac becomes a father, he has two sons. Before those sons are born, his wife, Rebecca, realizes that some things are really rustling down there. Something's moving in a big way. You know, you often, as a parent, wonder what your kids are going to be like when they come out. Um, I know we did. I remember when our second child uh, was conceived, and uh, we realized that this second child never stopped moving in the womb. I mean, literally. This second child kicked and moved, and I'm pretty sure had she had a voice, she would have been yelling. She never moved, and she came out moving and yelling, and she's never stopped. <laughs> what we identified in the womb was my daughter. 
Patricia. She's a very active individual. Rebecca says, what's going on in there? And God says, I'll tell you what's going on. There's two nations in your womb. What? <laughs> I thought we were just talking babies here. <laughs> no, there's two nations in your womb. And they're fighting with one another. And they're going to continue to be at odds with one another. But they're going to be great nations. And furthermore, the younger is going to serve, the older is going to serve the younger. That's the reverse order. The younger usually is second in the pecking order. The older gets all the rights. No, God says it's going to be reversed. I don't know if Rebecca told Abraham, Isaac about this. I, I wonder if she just kept it inside. But when they were born, it became clear that the stronger, bigger, more masculine, more dominant one was the older brother. And my guess is that played itself out in the human family dynamic where the older brother Esau was always on top, so to speak. Jacob was more pensive. He was also a lot more of a rascal in his own way. Esau was a man of the fields, and his father Isaac loved him because of that. And on one occasion, Isaac said to his son Esau, I'm getting old. I don't know how many more good steak dinners I'm going to have. Can you go to Golden Corral? No. Can... <laughs> Can you go out and kill some game and prepare it for me just the way I like it? You know how I like it, Esau. And Esau said, sure, Dad. And he went out and did it behind the curtain, so to speak, as Rebecca listening to it all. Now, remember the conversation she'd heard from God concerning the older and the younger. And she says to herself, something's got to change here. I got to help God out. That's probably always a bad thing, but she did. I got to help God out. And so she enters the room after Jacob, um, after Esau has gone, and she says to Jacob, come here. Your brother's about ready to leave to prepare some venison for your father we got to make this work. And she sets him up, and Jacob's worried about it. But Jacob makes a stew, and he does his best to make it taste like Esau would. While Esau's out getting the real thing, and, and Rebecca puts hair from a goat on his arm to try to make him hairy like his brother, because at this point Isaac is all but blind, and he can't see, and he can't hardly hear. And Jacob goes in with the food and says, here you are. And, and Esau says, ah, Smells like my son Esau. But the voice is, is the voice of Jacob. You know what that indicates to me? The old man knew. I think Isaac knew. Also makes me wonder if he already knew the story. The older, the younger. Makes me wonder if he was complicit, not manipulated. But he's known for being manipulated. And Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob. And of course, Jacob receives the blessing and Esau is just tormented by it. When Esau comes back, he explodes into a rage and then he begs his father with tears, please bless me, father. And Isaac says, no, son, there's only one. I've done it. And then he gives him something of a secondary blessing. That's a fascinating story. And there's other details to the story that you know well. But I focus on just those two. So what do we see in this story? What did the church see in these stories? 
Well, the church immediately saw in the story of Abraham and Isaac the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, the apostles looked back at it and said, that's what that story was about. There was a story within a story. It makes sense to me now that God would take such ultimate extremes to pronounce what was about ready to happen. Abraham may not have known. Isaac may not have known. But now we see it in retrospect, the story within the story. Now, here's the problem with the story within a story. We could go overboard and go to an extreme. Abraham's the father. God the father. Isaac's the son. Jesus Christ. And neither one of them is a perfect representation of the father or the son. But the baseline of the story is a representation of what happened on an eternal scale when Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father and suffered and died. He took the sin of the whole world and was resurrected because he knew no sin himself. That was the story. All the way back in Genesis. There's another part to that story that the church has routinely identified. It's the story of the Lamb. See, the words of Isaac had been echoing for centuries. Where's the Lamb? The ultimate Lamb. The Lamb of God. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus walk across the horizon the first time ever anyone recognized it, he pointed to Jesus and he said, there goes the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the earth. There's another theme that comes through in the New Testament, in the writers and in the history of the church. It's a theme that's associated with the name of God, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Because that was the answer that Isaac was given whenever he asked Abraham, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide. That too is part of the story. He did provide. He provided for every one of us in the person of Jesus Christ to be reconciled to God. My friends, you know, don't you? You know deep inside your soul that you cannot reconcile yourself to God. But Jesus Christ stands as the perfect Lamb of God who reconciles, forgives, and because of the resurrected life of Jesus gives us eternal life. What a gift of grace. So there's a sacrifice that's fulfilled in Jesus. And there's a prophecy concerning a new way. In this story, we notice that Jacob and Esau kind of switch roles, don't we? And you know what it tells us? It tells us that God's going to change things up. That God is going to bring the Messiah through his own people. And then... 
He's going to take the message of the Messiah and it will explode on the human horizon of grace through the Gentiles. The older is going to serve the younger. A new day is dawning and everyone will be bided into this grace. That's part of the story too. The story within the story. The story within the story doesn't end there. It continues to proclaim itself. And we see it behind the New Testament and in the New Testament and beyond the New Testament. God's unpredictable sovereignty is wonderful in its grace. God chooses a shepherd and makes him a king. God says through Jesus Christ, the first, they're going to be last, and the last are going to be first. If you want to be great in my kingdom, be the servant of all. If you want to be great, be like me. If you want to save your life, if you want real life, then lose your life, and then you'll save it. The reverse is all over the New Testament. And it's part of this story within a story. There's one more thing I mentioned about the story within a story. A story within a story is the demonstration of grace. The blessing we receive, it's all about grace. That's the story of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. It reminds us that sin triumphed. It reminds us that grace triumphs over sin. It reminds us that a weak man, like Isaac in so many ways, if you study his character, a person who's easily manipulated, it seems as well, can be used for divine purposes. It reminds us that Esau, who is an absolute impulsive fool, he was, could be used unwittingly to accomplish God's purposes. It reminds us that Jacob, an incredible scoundrel, was chosen by God to deliver to us Jesus Christ. You know what the story within the story is, among other things? The story of grace within the story is that you look at each of those individuals and at some level you see yourself and you identify grace. Don't you know you're Jacob? Don't you realize you're as impulsive as Esau? Don't you realize you've been manipulated like Isaac? Don't you realize you're as manipulative as Rebecca? And don't you realize that no matter who you are, God extends his unbelievable grace to you and asks you to follow him by faith. What a wonderful story. It can be your story if it's not. If it is, I wish you'd make it your story today by surrendering yourself to Christ. If it is your story, don't forget it this week.
Let's pray together. Lord, your grace is sufficient uh, for all our sins. That is to say, your grace is greater than all our sins. No matter what we've done, where we've come from, who we are, your grace extends to us. Lord, your grace even extends to us when we're resisting you. We've all experienced it, Lord, if we think about it. We remember times where we were absolutely opposed to your way. And before we really surrendered, even opposed to you. And in spite of our opposition, your grace kept coming. So we pray, Lord, for the one today who's resisting you. We pray that your grace will keep coming. And we pray that eventually that person will be overwhelmed by the wave of grace and open up the door of his or her heart and allow you to transform them. For those of us uh, here this morning, Lord, who have received your grace in, in that initial stage, but have grown to a place that well, because of pride, we're not so reliant upon it. Because of our dutiful discipleship, which is really important, we think we have it figured out. Because of our discipline, we believe we're okay. Lord, knock us down once again with that grace. Help us to understand not only the initial grace, but the grace that we need every day to live for you. And the grace that we need to have our eyes open to the truth in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us and you never forsake us. And you keep showering us with grace. Make us recipients of this grace. Participants in it. So that we can be transformed by it. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.